I'm Rudy DeLeon, the Senior Vice President for National Security Programs here at the Center, and we've got an interesting morning of discussion for you. Last fall, a striking consensus emerged among leaders in the national security community. To meet the complex challenges of our time, we must use all the tools of our national power, defense, diplomacy, and development. This could not be more true than in Afghanistan. Over the last several months, the President, the Secretary of Defense, the Commander of U.S. Central Command have all concluded that military means alone will not win the war in Afghanistan. To move in a new direction, we must forge a new strategy. In January, the Center for American Progress, under the auspices of a grant from the Hewlett Packard Foundation, convened a team of leading experts from the defense, diplomatic, and developmental fields to run a three-day simulation which tested how enhanced foreign assistance in the U.S. foreign policy would advance our objectives in Afghanistan. The simulation, the simulation tested how modernizing and enhancing developmental tools in Afghanistan and in the U.S. government would affect the ability of the U.S. to achieve both short and long-term objectives in stabilization and reconstruction operations. The results from that simulation, read by, led by Dr. Ruben Brigadi of the Center for American Progress, will be briefed here this morning. Though the challenges in Afghanistan are daunting, they are not insurmountable if we use the right tools. Our military is exceptional. The sacrifices, courage, and strength of our men and women in uniform are unmatched in the world. Achieving a modest level of security within Afghanistan is within our capability. However, now we must see to it that our civilian institutions of diplomacy and development are as robust, flexible, and effective in conflict situation as is our military personnel. To continue the discussion this morning, we have uh, two distinguished panelists. Dr. Patrick M. Cronin is the director of the Institute for National Security Studies at the National Defense University, Washington, D.C. He joined the INSS after serving more than two years at the Inter International Institute for Strategic Studies in London, where he was Director of Studies and Executive Director of the Armed Conflict Database. Dr. Cronin has a 25-year career inside government and academic research centers career spanning defense affairs, foreign policy, and developmental assistance. Our discussion will be led this morning by Dr. Ruben Brigadi, the director of our center's Sustainable Security Project and author of today's featured report, Swords and Plowshares. Prior to joining the center, he served as a special assistant in the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, Humanitarian Assistance at the U.S. Agency for International Development and uh, also a career in the United States Navy. So I will turn it over to Dr. Brigadier and Dr. Cronin for getting the discussion going, but welcome. It should be a very interesting morning here at the center. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Uh, welcome again to the Center for American Progress. As uh, my boss, Rudy DeLeon, said, my name is Ruben Brigadier, and we're very pleased to uh, have you here with us today. Uh, we are facing clearly a pivotal moment in Afghanistan. 
the president has uh, clearly decided that this is a war which must be concluded successfully. And by all accounts in the media and elsewhere, uh, we are likely to see a new strategy out of the administration with regard to Afghanistan in relatively short order. Here at the Sustainable Security Program, our uh, approach to security is based on the premise that we actually make America more secure and support our direct national security interests when we focus on improving the lives of others, particularly in the context of developing countries and countries that are in conflict or in, uh, in various stages of transition. Nowhere could this be more true than in Afghanistan. Over the last several months, there has been much discussion on how to, to change or improve our military approach to Afghanistan. And there has been some discussion, uh, at least some recognition, that uh, the solution to Afghanistan is not military entirely. Indeed, that we have to take a whole-of-government approach that includes diplomacy and development. What we have not seen in any great, great detail thus far is a detailed analysis of what those non-kinetic instruments will have to be in order to achieve success in Afghanistan and more fundamentally what changes we might have to make in our own government in order to be able to achieve those gains. Now this debate about Afghanistan has also been taking place in parallel to another debate that has uh, been happening in Washington and that is with regard to reforming our foreign assistance uh, mechanisms generally. It is broadly acknowledged that the ways in which the United States delivers assistance, particularly the ways in which it is coordinated with our military and other um, other forms of government is profoundly flawed, some would even say profoundly broken. These two debates come together in the context of what our approach to Afghanistan should be. So last fall, the Center for, at the Center for American Progress, we decided to try to approach this problem and try to do it in a relatively novel way. We decided that we would host a simulation exercise to test many of the recommendations that we at the Sustainable Security Program have made over the last year or so about how to reform our foreign assistance mechanisms. And we decided that we would do it in a country that, uh, that was vital to U.S. interests and where reforms of foreign assistance uh, were indeed really quite important and we chose Afghanistan. So what we are going to do today is the following. I'll tell you a little bit about the purpose of our exercise. We'll talk a little bit about the methodology. Uh, I will go through the results, which are printed uh, in the copy of the report, which hopefully you received on the way in. We'll talk a bit about the recommendations that flowed from this exercise, and then we'll turn uh, the floor over to uh, my colleague, Dr. Patrick Croner, for his response. And then we'll also um, uh, open the floor for a conversation. Before I do that, let me just issue a couple of, word of, of uh, words of additional thanks. Obviously, to the Hewlett Foundation, who generously fund the Sustainable Security Program and made this particular report possible. I'm also extraordinarily grateful to the 20 or so Afghanistan and development experts who came to participate in the Arleigh Center exercise, some of whom are here today in, in, in the front row, um, whom you may be hearing from a little bit later. And I'd also like to thank the Institute for State Effectiveness, run by Dr. Ashraf Ghani and Claire Lockhart, who wrote the simulation for us and did an awful lot of hard work to make this happen. So, the purpose of the simulation was twofold. Again, the first purpose was to test many of the sustainable security foreign assistance recommendations for, for reform. Among them are things that we've articulated like the need for a national strategy for global development, the need for an increased bureaucratic presence um, for development. We have suggested that we think the best way to do that is to create a cabinet level development agency, not unlike the British have in their Department for International Development, a substantial increase in the number of, de of, um, of development personnel, et cetera. 
So that was the first purpose, to test those recommendations in a real-world environment. The second is to develop uh, relevant policy options for, uh, for foreign assistance reform generally and for Afghanistan in particular for all the reasons that I mentioned previously. There were a couple of steps uh, that we went through in order to achieve this when we started this program last fall. The first, as I mentioned, was to select an appropriate case study. We decided to go with Afghanistan for some reasons that are obvious, like its relevance to, um, to, to current debates, but some that are also a little bit less obvious. Afghanistan, even if we didn't have uh, grave U.S. interests there, still meets many of the criteria of failing and fragile states that the United States will have to respond to around the world. We should also note that when we decided to engage the Institute for State Effectiveness, we uh, realized that we had enormous uh, expertise in Afghanistan in the part of Dr. Ghani and Ms. Lockhart, who, um, who have, uh, from, from their various perspectives, great experience both in Afghanistan and in development assistance generally. So when we decided to engage the Institute for State Effectiveness, they did a fantastic job writing a scenario. And this is essentially the methodology that we decided to use. We would conduct the scenario over the course of about two and a half days in three different rounds. Each round would have two parts, a Washington part and an Afghanistan part. And the rounds, as the rounds changed, we would gradually increase the sorts of foreign assistance mechanisms that were available to, to the participants to achieve their objectives during the course of the simulation. So round one was under the current set of authorities and capabilities of the US foreign, of US foreign assistance architecture. Round two would have a slightly improved set of mechanisms. And then round three would have what we call the maximalist set of capabilities. The maximalist defined by essentially sort of our, a, a blank slate wish list. If, we, if, we had, if there were no politics involved, if you had unlimited resources, what would we do with our foreign assistance mechanisms? And those are based largely on, um, on the, the policy proposals that we at, at CAP have articulated for some time. As I mentioned, uh, each round had two parts, a Washington part, in which uh, case each of, the, uh, each of the participants was assigned a role to play that represented some portion of the interagency. These roles included things like uh, being the Assistant Secretary of State with responsibility for, uh, for, for Asia, being the Assistant Administrator of, of USAID with responsibility for Asia under which Afghanistan falls. Um, serving as the, uh, the Director for Operations and the Joint Staff, the Director for Operations of the U.S. Central Command, and various other sorts of tasks. The task of round, of part A of each round was to develop a strategic plan for Afghanistan. So it was to take a strategic policy level look at how we should approach the country and what tools we could bring to bear. So in a sense, it replicated what one would do in the Washington interagency process. Part B of each round, based in Kabul, was to develop an operational plan for Afghanistan. So each of the participants who had a Washington hat would then take their Washington hat off, go into part B of the round, and put on a role based in Afghanistan. So things like being the US ambassador to Afghanistan, being the USAID mission director in Kabul, uh, serving as the uh, commander of US ground forces in Afghanistan. One person served as uh, uh, an army brigade commander serving as the lead element of the provincial reconstruction teams, et cetera. Again, to the tune of about uh, some 20 different, um, 20 different roles. All of these roles in, in, in great detail in addition to the simulation schedule will be, are, are available on our website as well if you'd like to see this in, in any greater detail. As I mentioned, um, each of the participants we invited have, had either substantial years of experience in Afghanistan or substantial experience in development assistance or some combination of the above. 
and we hosted it at the Airlie Center in Warrington, Virginia, uh, to which we also need to extend a word of thanks for their fantastic job they did hosting us. So broadly speaking, this is the these are the results and how we um, uh, how the simulation was conducted. Uh, during round one, I should also say that each of the rounds was very lightly facilitated um, by Dr. Ghani, uh, just to help the help the uh, help the, the participants grapple with the challenges. And then each of the rounds was was observed, both with independent observers in the room and also viewed remotely from another location where those of us that were act operating in what we called the control cell could monitor everything that was happening and, and, and also watch, um, watch for patterns in terms of decision making. Overwhelmingly in round one, as the, uh, the group with their Washington hats on was trying to understand how we should focus on Afghanistan, there was an overwhelming focus on security. Um, although there was a general recognition that other things might matter, the first question that they, they tried to address was, how does one achieve security on the ground? Based on the assumption that without security, everything else was relatively irrelevant. And at the end of the round, uh, they coalesced their conversations and came up with five priority actions um, that they felt needed to be priorities for U.S. policy in the grand scale. One was the creation of a political breakthrough inside Afghanistan in order to create political space for um, uh, for, for debate. Another is obviously the development of a regional solution to include Afghanistan and Pakistan um, on the assumption that one can't view Pakistan alone, that the developments in Pakistan affect Afghanistan, even to some extent and vice versa. The third was an emphasis on security, both internally and also with regard to borders. The fourth was an emphasis on governance and rule of law, and that includes everything from tamping down corruption to improving the ability of police forces. The fifth of the five developmental priorities was development. So although uh, the, the task was to think about a whole of government approach, there was a recognition that development was important, but it was, it was, it was seen essentially or listed as the last of the five. Not that it wasn't important, but all the others um, clearly had some level of precedence and, certainly, and clearly dominated the conversation. After we moved from round 1A in Washington to round 1B in Kabul, thus the, the participants were thinking much more operationally about how to make these things happen on the ground. Um, a couple of things surfaced. The first was they recognized very clearly the need for an integrated civil-military plan in Afghanistan. That even given the top-line strategic objectives developed by Washington, uh, it was vital to be able to uh, develop an operational plan that linked civilian, cap civilian capabilities seamlessly with military capabilities on the ground. Another major priority was the need to support the government of Afghanistan Broadly, that meant improving the capacity of the government so that they could provide services for their own people, uh, so they could uh, take care of their own border security and also provide for their own internal security and be, and be effective partners with the government of the United States. The third item was the, a need to focus on projects that would bring near-term economic development for a variety of reasons, um, both because it would increase revenue for the government, principally because it would, take, it would give disaffected youth other things to do besides engaging in armed conflict, um, and also because it was one of the ways to provide services for the population. In that regard, there were three critical operational tasks that they came up with. One was the need to support agriculture. Afghanistan is clearly a majority agri agrarian society. Um, almost half the GDP comes from an agricultural product that is illicit, the growth of opium poppy, um, and thus the need to supporting agriculture, both in terms of supporting infrastructure and supporting things like uh, credit for farmers, was vital to be able to move away from the opium trade and give farmers some alternative form of livelihood. Another major near-term economic development issue was the need to improve uh, education, both vocational education, 
for, um, for technical jobs, mechanics, et cetera, and uh, university education for the brightest Afghans. And this is true not only to build the intellectual capital for the next generation of Afghanistan, but also so, so young Afghans can begin to see their own future in their own country and, again, have productive uh, things to participate in. The final uh, issue that was confronted was the issue of, of contractors. Um, it was noted during the simulation there are some 48,000 contractors in Afghanistan. Uh, it is uh, very, very difficult, if not possible, to gain visibility on the activities of all of them to the extent that the U.S. government and other agencies perform their, their missions in Afghanistan through contractors. You're taking a very large percentage of, of the total amount of foreign assistance that's going to uh, managing or maintaining contractors, which means that you will have a much smaller proportion actually making it to, to um, take into the ground. In a presentation here uh, several months ago, Dr. Ghani suggested that that number probably means that only about 20 to 25 percent of every dollar of foreign assistance actually makes it to programming on the ground when it's filtered through contractors of one form or another in, inside Afghanistan. Now, we had an interesting development when we decided to move from round one to round two. Um, we realized that both due to the group dynamics and how far they were pushing things, that there actually wouldn't be much use in simply incre in increasing the level of tools that are available to the participants incrementally. We thought that it would be a waste of time, um, despite what we had planned for originally. So what we decided to do instead was go straight to round three, that is go straight to the maximalist position, uh, to give the participants more time to grapple with the problems if they had the maximum set of tools available. So we went straight to round three. And something else happened additionally when we went to round three. You know, when you're doing a simulation like this, there are, all, there are inevitably a number of, um, uh, of constraints that one works against. And one of them was the availability of the participants for the entire uh, exercise. For a variety of reasons, uh, we were only able to get experienced USAID development professionals in the room on the second day of the exercise as opposed to the first day meaning that they were there. They weren't there when we were trying to uh, do operational and strategic planning under current set of conditions, but they were there when we were trying to do that similar planning under the maximal set of conditions. And we realized that the addition, well, I'll save that for a little bit because it's one of the goodies of the, of the report. Um, they were added and it made a difference. Let me say that for a moment. The second thing uh, was that relatively early on in round three, we told the participants to assume a certain level of security. So they weren't thinking about security entirely, and they could actually begin to think about how one deploys other aspects of, 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 of development and dip diplomatic assistance to a much more uh, robust scale. Then finally, uh, with those two sets of conditions in involved, two things happened. One, the addition of the professional, professional the uh, sort of longer-term experienced USAID and, and Treasury officials fundamentally changed the conversation. Uh, it dramatically changed the sorts of, of, of options that they were considered, dramatically changed the experience level in the room, dramatically even changed the framework within which the participants were looking at classical security problems and looking at the intersection between development and security. Uh, with, to that end, the group focused on four essential issues that needed to be addressed from a strategic level. The first was agriculture, for reasons that we talked about previously. The second was youth and the importance of engaging youth in productive activities. The third was funding uh, and the significance of developing funding mechanisms that are much more flexible that would allow the civilian development professional, uh, professionals to engage much more rapidly with their military counterparts to do programming and that was multi-year in nature. 
so that you could actually do programming not based on any individual uh, budgetary cycle, but you could plan projects that would take two or three years and know that you would have the working capital in order to execute it effectively. The fourth thing was to focus on district level planning. That is, instead of focusing on development projects through the government per se, focus on projects that, that provide direct benefit to the local population, not unlike the National Solidarity Program has done in Afghanistan for some time. When we moved to round 3B, that is the operational focus, we saw yet again another slight change in methodology. Receiving an awful lot of input from the participants, uh, they actually really wanted to think through the discussions they had in round 3A in a much more detailed fashion and think through the, 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 the strategic operational nexus in much greater detail uh, and to do so with an eye of what would actually be the fundamental game changers on the ground if we could actually uh, do some of these things. And they came up with four basic uh, uh, issues that should be addressed. The first is the, ne the need to integrate civil military planning, and, they, and even to a much greater degree than, than it was addressed in round 1A, that this integration is vital, and that indeed without that level of integration, uh, the, the implementation of any sort of uh, strategy in Afghanistan would, would be for naught. The second was the need to uh, create a cabinet-level development agency precisely because they felt it would help improve the level of integration both at the strategic level in Washington and even operationally on the ground. The third was the need for police training. Uh, the, the lack of qualified police inside Afghanistan or police that were predatory in nature was seen as a major, major gap in governance, a major uh, impediment to economic development and a major impediment to security broadly. And it was uh, assessed that one of the best ways to fill that gap is to remove or otherwise revise Section 660 of the Foreign Assistance Act, which prevents USAID from engaging in police training. And the fourth was to focus on the, the security of the population as a military objective, which is a core precept of counterinsurgency strategy and is a different way of thinking from um, conventional, otherwise conventional military operations. After those three rounds, we had what we called a hot wash, which was essentially an after-action review in which not only the observers and the administrators of the simulation, but also the participants um, got to share their own thoughts of what they, of, uh, what they perceived and how the simulation was conducted, and also helped inform many of our, um, our analyses. And there were four key points that emerged from this. The first was, the, as I mentioned, the importance of having development professionals in the room. The participants themselves, indeed, many of the participants who have long experience in the Pentagon, who are senior military officers, all said that having develop, senior development professionals in the room fundamentally changed the conversation, and they really actually wish they had that voice earlier on in the, uh, in the simulation. The second was the use of uh, development assistance as a counterinsurgency tool and the importance of linking development and counterinsurgency. Um, in the Bush paradigm, the paradigm that was being used in the Bush administration in Iraq, to some extent in Afghanistan, of clear, hold, and build. If you were able to clear an area, uh, you can't hold it in, and you certainly can't build on it unless you can bring development assistance uh, tools very, very quickly to bear. And the failure to be able to do that because of inflexible funding mechanisms, because of the small number of development professionals in the room, development professionals on the ground, undercuts the credibility of our military forces with the local population and therefore is a major seam of potential failure. The third uh, takeaway we had was that as maximalist as we thought our maximalist tools were, the participants and others thought that even that robust set of suite of tools was not enough. And what that tells us is that foreign assistance reform is vital and that we may very well have to go uh, further than we initially thought. The fourth key point was the importance of what was called catalytic development. So instead of doing development programming in which the West and our allies were actually the provider of assistance, 
it was realized that we simply, even if we had them, we, even if we wanted to, we do not have enough development professionals in the world to deploy to every place in Afghanistan was important. Therefore, an opposite approach should be taken. It's important to focus on development programs which would encourage the local government, encourage indeed local Afghan uh, civilians to develop their own solutions to problems and trying to figure out creative ways uh, to do that work all the way down to the, to, the, to the micro level to the extent that one can. But finally is that clearly some, it, as a result of all this, it was clear that we have to take steps urgently urgently to achieve this integrated civil-military cooperation, both at the planning level in Washington and at operational uh, headquarters, and also the execution level in the field. And this leads us to uh, the, four, the five major recommendations of the report. The first is integrated planning and execution, um, all of which are in the copies of the report that I gave you. Um, the, the list you will note from uh, basically includes recommendations that I've articulated earlier. The second is the importance of focusing on counterinsurgency and, and development. And there are two key points here. Afghanistan is a heterogeneous environment with regard to security, meaning that there are some places in the country which are incredibly insecure and highly contested. There are others which are more secure. One can think about this in sort of a red, yellow, green paradigm. Green places are more secure, red places are highly contested, yellow places are somewhere in the middle. Heretofore, much of our development assistance has been uh, focused in the so-called red areas, that is the places where our troops are most fundamentally in contact. The majority of our participants, although not all, but the majority of our participants argue that what we should be doing instead is focusing development assistance on the green areas, both because they're more secure, because you can begin to gain, uh, or begin to achieve development gains, and three, to keep on side people that are in the green areas so that they don't, feel, they don't begin asking the question, who do we have to shoot in order to get some development assistance around here? And the fourth is that if you can actually show the improves of li proven lives in the green areas, then that will serve a demonstrative effect in civilian population in the red areas and how much better their lives can improve should they uh, begin to decide with the government and others. The fourth is the importance of catalytic development, as we talked about before. The fifth is the, uh, that develop development professionals matter, and therefore it is vital to increase the number of development professionals on both oper operational and strategic staffs and also with tactical units in the field. And finally, this notion that our maximalist measures, as important as we thought they were, actually don't go far enough, and we need to be thinking much more creatively, indeed much more robustly about foreign assistance reform as a vital national interest in Afghanistan in particular, and then also with regard to our, our national security writ large. So those are the essence of the reforms uh, of, of, of uh, our results. Um, I will turn the floor over now to my colleague, Dr. Patrick Cronin, and then we'll go to the floor for questions. So, Patrick. Well, Ruben, thank you very much, and let me congratulate you and the Center for American Progress for what was really one of the best simulations I've ever been involved in. You've got some of the experts who were uh, participants for the three days here in the front row, and I know we want to hear from them when the uh, Q&A comes around. Um, but it was realistic. It was uh, involved experts. It uh, allowed for depth over the three days, and yet it, it also uh, brought about the element of a deadline inside the decision-making, which is realistic. If you think about what the Obama administration has just recently done, they move in and they say, my goodness, we need an Afghan strategy. Well, <laughs> they had to take the series of Afghan-Pakistan strategies and then try to review them and come up with a new integrated strategy. And we read every day in the press that we're very close to uh, seeing what the outline of a new Afghan strategy is. So it's not unrealistic to give people just a very short time to deal with complex problems that have been around for years and to force them to come up with a new strategy uh, that's integrated and comprehensive right away. The, um, 
my comments are mostly uh, positive or maybe embroider on some of the themes of the report because I, I found very little to criticize in it. And um, uh, let me just suggest that one of the, perhaps the red thread that runs through a lot of my thoughts on these issues is the difficulty, the need, maybe the failure to integrate economics and economic development into security, into strategy, into operations, into plans, into implementation, into assessment, into intelligence. This is a, uh, the big challenge in many ways. So this is part of uh, a much larger set of challenges that governments face, that non-governmental organizations face on how to try to weave these together. And to say that doesn't succumb to the belief that somehow if you have a comprehensive strategy, you can solve all the world's problems. Far be it from me to think that. I don't. In fact, it's just the opposite. I'm, I want to make sure that we are hard-headed and realistic and not just cheerleading for a latest approach or a latest strategy. Um, but at the same time, if we don't come up with all five of those elements you've, you know, you've identified and identified at the simulation, development is not just one of the elements. It's a package deal. <laughs> that if you're going to have some hope of, of being more successful, um, then you're going to need to resolve all of these challenges. And that's really what uh, Swords and Plowshares, finding sustainable security in Afghanistan is, I think, all about. Let me make a couple of general uh, comments about foreign assistance and then go into Afghanistan. The idea of the three Ds, and I think I'm quoted in the little blurb that you put together with uh, my ear, I think, in the, uh, in the, in the screen. Um, <laughs> some very creative photography. Um, looking at uh, defense, diplomacy, and development, um, it is an aspiration on the part of any government or organization to try to weave these different disciplines, professions, uh, and instruments of policy together. Uh, there is no magic formula. We don't know how to do this well. We've done it better and sometimes in the U.S. government. We've done it worse sometimes. Um, having just come out, and I'll look at Don Liberia, and I hope she speaks up because she was one of the co-directors on the uh, Central Command uh, Assessment Team effort, which was one of many efforts, to be sure, but, but a major effort with more than 300 people at the end of the day trying to figure out how do you figure out strategies for the greater Middle East, but also specifically challenges like Afghanistan, Pakistan. And you really can't when? Because if you're CENTCOM and you're trying to invite the interagency in, you'll be accused of militarizing the problem. If you don't invite the interagency in, you'll be accused of militarizing the problem. Um, it, it, the, the reality is that we've got to go beyond uh, CENTCOM or any one of the departments to figure out how to lead at the top uh, an integrated approach. That has to really start at the National Security Council and the White House, ultimately, because that, there has to be somebody above um, these processes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very heartened to see in this case, a special envoy with, with someone like General Petraeus and with <clears throat> the team that's been identified going to Afghanistan um, because they actually can raise these issues above the usual bureaucratic politics and above the difficulties that we have here in Washington where we run into uh, political turf and bureaucratic turf so often. <clears throat> There's another problem here, though, and that's the basic imbalance that we have in people and resources that are uh, underscored in this report. Um, when we talk about complaining about the militarization of foreign assistance, for instance, and I understand, Ruben, you testified on this yesterday, and I apologize I wasn't privy to that. Um, but the point is that, uh, you know, rather than accusing the military of militarizing foreign assistance, rather than trying to slow down the military's march into this area, I think 
the, the happier medium is to accelerate the civilian growth in foreign assistance. Um, in other words, to say that once we enlarge our civilian capacity at State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development uh, and beyond, um, both in terms of professionals and resources and authorities, then we'll have a, a more equal playing field and it will be natural to overcome some of these, um, I think, somewhat unproductive discussions. Are we militarizing or not militarizing foreign assistance? The question is how do we get there and, and therefore we, we say things like militarization partly to get attention because we're trying to um, uh, open up a debate and say how do we actually achieve and take the next step because we say there's no military solution to a, to a complex problem like Afghanistan, but then we're unwilling to take those next steps. As you say, even the maximalist measures are insufficient. It's almost like the economic stimulus package. You know, we're on the third tranche now of a trillion dollars, and everybody recognizes the problem's bigger. Well, this isn't that expensive, but the point is it is analogous in the sense that we keep undershooting the estimates of what's required. Again, that's a trade-off, that's a political decision, that has to be a political consensus in our democracy and with in coalition partners and the international community and, and above all with Afghanistan. But um, if you're serious, then you have to commit the resources, you have to come up with the authorities, you have to identify the people that will actually implement uh, the policy and the strategy. On the strategy, uh, so much of it centers really on the, on the on kind of fundamental questions always. We don't spend enough time in Washington as a general rule on identifying the objectives and what is our objective. And so we immediately get into a caricature of objectives, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, you know, Jeffersonian democracy, failed state. I mean, so we, we have to come up with a realistic set of objectives uh, that can be phased in over time. And in this exercise simulation, one of the factors you didn't mention as much that's in the report is, is the look at different phases. How much can you accomplish in 2009? this immediate phase, and then how do you bridge that into some kind of middle state? And ultimately, though, where are you going? Where do you really think we can, as an outside country, working with others, help Afghans run Afghanistan, whatever that means? Um, some say that Afghanistan is you know, the, uh, the graveyard of empires. I'm not disheartened by that because the United States should not aspire to be an empire. It's not an empire. <laughs> if you're trying to build the capacity of the Afghans, then you may be able to achieve the success. If you're trying to run Afghanistan, then you're destined to fail. Um, the regional approach was, was mentioned as well, and that's very important. This, this report helps to uh, reduce the problem. We always have to have reductionism to some extent to try to neck down the problem to manageable uh, sizes, and yet at the same time, immediately when you get into a country as complex as Afghanistan with such porous borders and it's not just Pakistan, but it's Iran, and it's the region, and, uh, and, and therefore, in the, in the 40 plus countries that are involved in the coalition, um, it's a very complex uh, regional and even international challenge and problem that, um, that necessarily becomes uh, very complex. And yet, the need for something like a coin or coin and development strategy, I think, is fundamental to the way ahead. A book that's getting a lot of attention right now is David Kilcullen's new book, um, The Accidental Guerrilla, where he argues that um, you need to uh, be mindful that before you escalate the number of U.S. forces and international forces in Afghanistan, remember that that's, that creates a, a negative backlash. Um, and so it's one of the many balancing acts that has to happen as he calls for far more 
military support to advise and to build the capacity of the Afghan National Army, the Afghan police, of Afghan civil society, of governance, rule of law. And th there then the question becomes, how do you do that? And, and how do you build those things? Just taking the issue of the Afghan National Army and police, and I'm looking at Maren Stramecki because he's a man who knows this better than anyone I know, just how difficult that challenge is. Um, it, it's still too small a goal, what we have right now, and yet I don't know where the resources come for accelerating it unless we get much more serious about providing the resources. And there we don't see the debate on whether we're willing to provide those resources, but it's, it's critical if we're going to have Afghans manage the local security at the tribal, local level, as well as the provincial and national level. You're going to have to have Afghan police and, and army better trained in and, and, and much greater numbers. So let me delve a little more deeply into Afghanistan operationally um, as we talk about uh, a coin, a counterinsurgency approach where you're putting the protection of Afghan lives into the center of your focus, of your efforts. And the, the phrase to clear, hold, and build is a simplistic one, and yet it does capture so much of what the challenges are on the ground. And Ruben talked about this. How do you get not just to the build, how do you even get to the hold? especially in those semi-permissive areas, those yellow zones that Ruben talked about uh, in Afghanistan, and it's never quite the stoplight chart that may be good for a PowerPoint slide that we would like. I mean, uh, I think I watched uh, the news last night and they had some great footage from Afghanistan that kind of showed you just exactly what uh, some people have to deal with on the ground in, in terms of a, a country where even the roads are only 20% paved and that means the 80% unpaved are, are, are not very uh, traversable. Um, but the question is, how do we, how do we get to the, the hold and, and then ultimately to the build? It's uh, my colleague T.X. Hammes who's reminded me that the, the Soviets had cleared Panjshir Valley five times as kind of a reminder that the, you know, this has been done before and it's also failed before. Um, so it's going to have to be the Afghans who ultimately hold. And then the question is, how much can we, along with the rest of the international community, provide the means to build. And that's where the resources, the number of professionals, the authorities, again, your maximalist objectives are still way undersold in terms of what, what is needed. If this is truly the commitment, if this is the agreement, if this is the policy and the strategy, it's going to take more. And to do it, it's not just to agree on Afghanistan. It does mean fundamental reforms for foreign assistance. And that you, you alluded to the foreign assistance debate. Where is the debate? <laughs> I've been part of that debate over the previous years. But there is deafening silence in this town right now over the future leadership of the U.S. Agency for International Development. We've heard Secretary Clinton on a very successful trip to Asia talk about how the State Department is now firmly in control of two of the three Ds. Well, <laughs> that's good, but Madam Secretary, how do you actually implement development without development experts? Where are they? And I worry about the morale, about the future of what has been um, seen as a tertiary part of the government that's now been promoted up in stature as part of essential to strategy, essential to security, not just to solving conflicts in, in failed areas, but to preventing future conflicts. How do we do this when we're not yet focused seriously on fixing these instruments of policy? And not just U.S., but it's leveraging our ability to work with the international community, to work with indigenous forces, because ultimately, the problems are usually much bigger than certainly anything we can solve. So that's where I'm really hoping that we're going to see uh, some action in, in the coming weeks and months. I know a lot of this is held up because of timing. We have a 
worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. This is probably not the easiest time politically to talk about development assistance. We also have a vetting process that has reverted to form. Um, in our great democracy, uh, we tend to make it very difficult for the qualified people uh, to find their way to high office. Um, and um, we, hope, we hope we can work through those, those challenges. Um, I just want to make one last point, and that's the, you know, going back to the threat of economics and security. In Afghanistan, what we see with this Afghan election that is coming about now in August, the question of legitimacy. Does the Afghan government after August of 2009 have sufficient legitimacy to move Afghanistan ahead over the next several years, even with great support? This is a key issue. And so there's no way you can work on the election and the legitimacy issue without thinking through the economic assistance and the military assistance and the political diplomatic assistance together. That's why, again, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we have people like Ambassador Richard Holbrook sort of on the job because there's not a tougher man in town to kind of sort of knock heads together and say, let's get serious about a strategy, about an integrated approach. And people like General Petraeus, I know, down at CENTCOM and other military officials are happy to follow. As General Petraeus said at Verkunda recently uh, to Richard Holbrook, I I'm your wingman, I'm your support. I'm not in the lead. I'm here to support a political process, but we need now the economic and development process to be right up there with one of those three Ds, not some afterthought behind the diplomacy and behind the defense. Thank you. Before we go to the floor generally, uh, let me ask, we ha as I said, we have some of our participants here. Do anyone, did anybody like to make any comments? Anything? No? Don, yes? Okay. Kimberly, can I ask you pass the microphone to Don, please? And then we'll go to questions from the floor. Thanks very much, Ruben and Patrick. First of all, I want to thank you and the center for putting on this simulation. I thought it was also one of the best simulations I've been involved with, that's for sure. And I think a few comments that I'd like to make, and I have some other colleagues here from Treasury and, and others and colleagues who were in the simulation, wanted to pick up on three issues. And Patrick, you ended with the one that I wanted to pick up on. One of the key things that we're seeing sort of, not just in Afghanistan, but across the region, is this issue of legitimacy. That populations are feeling that there is a legitimacy crisis because their governments are unable to respond to their needs. Be that security, be that economic, be that development. And so I think this is one of the key things that we writ large need to be looking at in terms of how do we help build the legitimacy of the governments, and this is what several of the recommendations led to, how do you help have that sort of counterweight to obviously a military strategy that looks at on the civilian side what you can do in terms of building state effectiveness on one hand, but also this catalytic type of development intervention. How do you then also help catalyze in particular economic development? so that you have this, you know, grassroots up and also, you know, obviously international and, and national economic development. The two have to go hand in hand because if they don't, you're not going to have all elements of what we're looking at in terms of economic security, et cetera. So that's one overall point, and I think the report captures that, and I just wanted to highlight some of the things you said. Second thing, in terms of COIN and, and looking at development as a, a uh, an element of, of the counterinsurgency, I really do believe that that is one of the key things and it truly is where we need to be moving in Afghanistan. And Ruben alluded to how we need to be focusing on some of the, um, you know, more in the more secure areas so that we can get development assistance there. 
We also do need to figure out great, you know, sort of uh, innovative ways of getting this assistance into the red areas as well. So it's, it's got to be a balance, and you have to continue to move the circles out, so to speak, of the economic development piece. The point I'd like to make here, though, is it's also not linear. It doesn't actually go clear, hold, build. There is way, there is a lot of back and forth. And you can have great, you know, development in one area for a period of time, and then somehow it sort of, you know, because of a variety of reasons it recedes. So I think we have to be very mindful of the fact that there's a big virtual process going on here. And as, you know, Tip O'Neill once said, all politics is local. A lot, of, a lot of these issues in insurgency is local, and we have to be looking at that. And then the third issue is just looking at the local dynamics. We have to get a lot better in terms of our tools and applying the tools that we have to really understand local population needs and help the governments respond to them. I think we often think we know what the population wants, but we don't often have the, uh, the kind of informed opinions that we probably should have. And I think that we need to be better at developing that so that we can respond and, and help the, the governments actually respond. I mean, we're there to assist the governments, um, but we do have tools, and that gets to some of the flexibility. It gets to a lot of the things that you've both already spoken about. So I just want to uh, talk a little bit about that, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, I'm sure other colleagues of mine will have more to say as well. Thanks very much, Don. Uh, we have a limited period of time, so let's uh, go straight to questions from the floor. Uh, yes, ma'am, here, in the front. Florley, you changed your hair color. Good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <Ruth. laughs> Uh My name is Lorelai Kelly. I'm uh, the director of the National Security Program at the new uh, Progressive Caucus Foundation. And I have, um, you know, what you point out is, is sort of, there's a consensus on the left and right in this town for the need for national security reframing and reform. You, and you have the president saying, we're going to put the war you know, supplementals into the regular budget. Yet you still have people like Mirtha putting an $18 billion plane in the supplemental. Um, it's the defense budget, the hardware items are still sucking all of the oxygen out of the room on national security. And right now, uh, our elected leaders have better cover than they've ever had on taking this on and making the guns versus butter argument within the defense budget so it doesn't get taken down on domestic um, trade-offs. Um, I have a question for you. It might sound crazy, and Army people might be mad at me for this, but it seems to me that we need like a judo strategy for Congress, which is how about if we take um, this problem about balance and civil military tools and make the Army the executive agent for a transition strategy in our own government for building up these kinds of tools and saying after 10 years, State Department, you are it. You're the one that has to have the personnel by then. You're the AID, you're the one that has to create the civilian tools for these kinds of problems that we're facing because it's taken, you know, first of all, to get the authority to develop the civilian response corps, you know, took forever, even with consensus in the Senate, um, to do it, to get 200 people, I think, now are in the standing, the civilian response corps. What do you think this idea of just saying, okay, it, military, one of you service branches needs to be the executive agency for making this happen, do the division of labor, give it back to the civilians at the end of 10 years. Is that crazy or do you think that's possible? It seems to me that might be one of the only things that would work on Capitol Hill because the military does not get the same level of scrutiny as everybody else. As, a, as an old Navy man, I'm not sure I want to trust the Army to that task. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, just, uh, just teasing. Um, 
No, I, I think that, I mean, I, you, you bring a, a sort of a broader meta point, Laurel, which I, I appreciate you're bringing it up. And that is that, you know, for all sorts of reasons, we, we, it is much easier for our political culture to fund various aspects of our defense budget that may or may not objectively make us safe and much less easy for us to fund a other aspects of our, our government in the, in the State Department or USAID, which have a clear contribution, direct contribution to our national security. Um, I am not a fan of turning that process over to the military, not even though they are actually some of the greatest proponents of it, mainly because I think that, you know, to, to, not to put too sort of hard a phrase on it, but our political culture has to grow up in this regard. I mean, it, we, we have to be able to have this conversation uh, amongst civilians, for civilians, for this capability. Uh, I think that sort of simply farming it out to, um, to the defense appropriation process because it's easier is bad. Now having said that, I, what I will say is that this mission is not going to go away. And if we don't figure out a way to improve our civilian capabilities quickly, um, the military will continue to engage in this area. I testified on this, as, as Patrick said, at the House Foreign Affairs Committee yesterday. It's in all of our interest to be able to improve our civilian capacity uh, in that regard. Um, I see a question or a comment from Jeremy in the back left. Yes. Uh, Jeremy, yeah. and, then, and, then we'll, and then we'll go to Brian right after that. Um, thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Jeremy, Pam, uh, uh, Treasury. Uh, uh, thanks to uh, Ruben and Cap and uh, and, and Patrick uh, for this excellent simulation and the excellent report. My question is is really uh, uh, in the nature of a clarification, because uh, looking through uh, the excellent report, there there are two sections that I can imagine uh, someone reading this possibly thinking are intention, but I don't think they are, and I just want to make sure that I'm I'm right in understanding it. Uh, the the fifth recommendation is that maximalist measures developed by the Sustainable Security Program and the Center for American Progress to ensure that development assistance and military operations work hand-in-hand -hand are insufficient, even when presented with policy options that are generally seen as the most ambitious in the current foreign assistance reform debate, the participants felt that those expanded options were insufficient to achieve the desired result. At the same time, the third recommendation is that the U.S. needs to use development assistance to build local capacity and solutions rather than building dependence on external su support. It's impossible for the U.S. to deploy enough personnel in the field to meet all the essential needs of a population. Uh, as a result, the U.S. needs to develop U.S. assistance efforts that are focused on helping host government, uh, et cetera, rather than performing tasks directly. I just, my question is, just want to make sure when you talk in, I think, on the slide about sort of going beyond the maximalist measures. Uh, uh, am I right in thinking that you're not arguing uh, for just more? Uh, you're arguing, to use a phrase that I think CAP has used in, in other contexts, uh, for kind of smarter approach to uh, sustainable security, uh, uh, you know, which, which by putting host government uh, institutions at the center, relying on the host government rather than bypassing it, uh, you know, might require different kinds of, of programs and, uh, and U.S. assistance providers. Am I right in thinking that? I think that's a fair comment. And, and obviously there is some tension between the two, but I think the way around that tension is a recognition that uh, we do not have the current set of tools that we need, even 
we, and I think the simulations uh, showed us that we weren't even being as ambitious as needed to be in order to bring this, this level of capability to bear in a meaningful way in Afghanistan and elsewhere around the world. That said, um, even if we were to have much greater uh, capabilities, as you correctly said, it's not simply about numbers. It's about trying to figure out having uh, both strategies and mechanisms to support those strategies to do catalytic development better in a way that actually leads to a greater stability. We'll go to Brian and then this gentleman here. Hi, I'm Brian Jolkowski from Mercy Corps and one of the other participants who's cowering in the back rather than the front. Um, Ruben, I just wanted to uh, underscore the point you made before, but also maybe segue to your discussion with uh, Jeremy. And that is, you know, one of the dynamics in the simulation that I think probably is quite instructive to, to Patrick's point um, about current debates of, of balancing foreign assistance and, and um, institutional presence is that it wasn't just, in, in the simulation, it wasn't just that there were more development professionals in the room, but as the simulation went on, there were more resources available as well. And that, both of those, the combination of both of those factors enabled us to kind of start to think a little more creatively and push some other things that earlier in the discussion with kind of a more current real wor world scenario, you had a real focus on security. Um, and we were able to kind of pivot and be a little bit more creative once some of those dynamics changed. You had more of a presence of the development people and more resources to work with. And to the point of, you know, how, how we in interagency dialogues kind of recreate that dynamic, I think it's pretty instructive. Uh, this gentleman here, and then we'll go to the right side of the room. So, Jeremy Hart. I'm going to ask you to wait for the microphone, please, sir. Thank you. John Keaton with a long-term Peace Corps background. One of the tools to bear is the National Solidarity Program. Uh, you mentioned it once. Um, it truly does have presence across the country. Did the simulation spend a fair amount of time on that aspect? We did in the sense that we, we raised it. Um, clearly one of the architects for the National Security, uh, National Solidarity Program uh, facilitated the conversation, so we actually had an awful lot of insight. Um, but it was clear that uh, that model or others like it, which actually brought um, development resources as close to the ground as possible, and also um, by doing so, helped improve local governance because local uh, villagers have to decide amongst themselves how they wanted to fund these projects was definitely one of the things that, that we talked about and it's also clearly one of the issues of catalytic development. This ma'am here in the green. I ask you to wait for the microphone, please. Kate Howard, my question is, in this simulation, did you take the approach in, in, in reforming U.S. foreign policy to, to deliver development assistance more effectively? Did you also consider was it an we have to do everything approach, or was it we will divide this among our allies, we will divide this among the Afghan government? Because my understanding was, at least in 2006 and 2007, the Italians were going to work on justice, the Germans were training police. So I just wondered where that fit into this simulation. It is a Thank great, you. it's a great question. Um, we decided to focus exclusively on the U.S. government rather than our allies for a couple of reasons. As you might imagine, the number of variables that one could put in a simulation like this are myriad. So we had to scope it appropriately. Um, and the other reason was that most of our recommendations, all of our recommendations thus far in the sustainable security program have been focused on the U.S. government. So we wanted the simulation to focus in that regard, which is not to say that, there, I mean, clearly there was, there was a component in the real world of engaging our allies um, uh, on various aspects of this, but it would, simply went beyond the scope of our, of our simulation. Sir? 
I'm Dan Martin, the Conservation International. Uh, first, I want to applaud this uh, integration that you're uh, um, leading. It's uh, very much overdue. Um, but I have a concern that I, I think I hear a contradiction. In, uh, at the beginning, you said something about how our development efforts are broken. This is a widely used uh, uh, description that AID is broken. And I wonder if you're um, implying that that's purely a structural matter that could be cured by having a Department of Development, or whether there's some paradigmatic problems, which is my guess, uh, and the point that was raised earlier about legitimacy really gets at that because legitimacy is so very difficult to come by if uh, people in a country that we see as being all one color on a map don't really want to be part of the same political entity. Uh, providing uh, water and power and police and so forth isn't necessarily enough to secure legitimacy. So this come back to the question, um, is there something more that needs to be done um, in terms of how we conceive that development mission than uh, reorganizing our uh, formal structure? Fair, it's a fair question. I think the two are integrally linked. Um, so I think that the nature of, of the structure you have inevitably dictates the sorts of things you're able to do on the ground and therefore uh, plays into doctrinally how you approach it. And then conversely, whatever your doctrinal approach is to what developments look like will inform what the structure should be. Um, so to some extent, it's, it's, it's chicken and egg, but I do think they're related. We have time for one more question. to go to this gentleman here on the right. Yes, please. Hi, Anthony Odie. I spent 30 years with the World Bank. Um, one of the West's goals in Afghanistan, apart from security development, has been to help us fight the drug war. And I wonder to what extent you've given thought to that aspect. My reading of the experience with alternative development elsewhere in the world, including Latin America, is that it's not encouraging, that once farmers get used to growing very profitable illegal drugs, it's difficult to offer them on any large scale alternatives that can compete. How far does that record come into your thinking? It's a great question. It's one that uh, the, the participants of the simulation have struggled with uh, a great deal, uh, not only because uh, the growth of opium and its, its in, in, impact on the heroin trade is bad in and of itself, but also because it fuels the insurgency. So I think the way in which it was, it was, it was, it was thought about is um, that there's actually, there basically was not a, we didn't have, a, or the participants didn't have the luxury to ignore the drug problem or simply to assume that we can just allow the farmer to continue to grow it because that has to, fighting the drug problem is integrally linked to fighting the insurgency. Now, there are multiple ways in which uh, the, the participants thought about it. One was, again, as, as we mentioned, to focus on alternative livelihoods. Um, there's a tiny bit of discussion on the margins about whether or not you focus on an interdiction strategy with regard at transit points or whether or not you focus on, on, on crop eradication. Um, but clearly, uh, there, there was a need to focus on alternative livelihoods. We did not focus on the record of alternative livelihoods um, in other parts of the world. Um, we assumed that a, 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 uh, an increased focus on agricultural development in Afghanistan uh, could help turn that tide, but certainly it would be a difficult one. 
I wish we had time for more questions, uh, but we are dedicated to making sure everybody gets out of here on time, support their day. I will certainly be here afterwards for if you have any more questions. Thanks again to our participants, and thank you very much for coming. Have a good day.